0: This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. Foundation, the reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here in Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm sitting in St. Louis with Jared Kaiser, Chief Investment Officer for Buckingham Strategic Wealth and the BAM Alliance. I should note our discussion is not tied to the offer of slave investment products The views of our guests are their own and not those of Wizard affiliates. Jared, thanks for joining us on the show today. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for having me. Um, Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. You have an interesting story, how you came into financial services and working with Buckingham. Maybe tell us your personal story before we get into some more details.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So chief investment officer at the at the firm, as you said. So I think most interestingly, my route into the firm is, uh, is somewhat unique, I think very unique in terms of how te- people typically enter uh, financial services. So way, way back early 2000s, I was actually of all things studying to become a physical therapist. Uh, this was around like 2000, 2001, uh, basically. So uh, got through uh, that program. Uh, realized I knew nothing about finance and investing and had decided, you know, I need to learn something here, getting ready to be uh, married, making at least a decent uh, income. Uh, went out to the local bookstore at the time I was living in, uh, in Nashville and happened to pick up uh, Larry Swedrow's first book, who's principal uh, at the firm that I currently work for and somebody that I work with really uh, closely at this point, and then Vogel's Common Sense on Mutual Funds and things just escalated from from there so basically ended up working in physical therapy for all of about 3 maybe 6 months something like that and then through a connection with Larry basically transitioned uh into financial services went back and got an MS finance at WashU you know got uh, a few other things a CFA designation but that's really how it all started
0: was there anything about the book that called you that to make it the second book with with Bogle's book how did how did it your name.
1: Yeah, I don't. I wish I could remember those details, but it's hard for me to remember because I didn't really know anything about Larry, obviously at the time, and didn't know Bogle uh, uh, really at, at all. So it's it's one of those things. It's somewhat of a miracle, uh, I guess. Yeah. It's hard to hard to know at this point. I mean,
0: timing is very similar to really how when I got started. I started working for Professor Siegel back in right. two thousand one. You know, very similar as. As you're coming in. And so you're shaped a lot by what was going on in the markets from when you first learned. Right. And that was, you know, the aftermath of the the tech or the, the peak of the tech bubble back in two thousand, Anything from those formative days of learning about the markets that – stay with you today.
1: Yes, yeah, so when I first started, it was, you know, we we I'm sure we'll get into the the difficulty that value has had uh, recently, but when I first started, we were on the flip side of that uh, that coin. So I first entered the business basically in 2003, which I know you know, that 2003 basically up to the financial crisis was a very very good stretch. Uh, for value relative to growth, a uh, good stretch for international relative to, to US, even though both had relatively meager returns. So, when I think about that period of time now, uh, you know, compared to today, it's interesting and it's something that I've been talking to our advisors and clients about. It's kind of a flip side of the coin uh, of what the last 10 years have, have looked like. So, it's really been Basically a tale of two decades in terms of the experiences that I had, in terms of in markets, performance, how the uh, systematic strategies that we would utilize would, are doing uh, then relative to how they're, they're doing uh, now. So, so tell our listeners a little bit more about Buckingham
0: and how the firm has grown and evolved since since you joined. A little bit about just the firm in general.
1: Yeah. So when I first started, so at the time we were a registered investment advisory firm, are still t- today. So primarily working with individual investor uh, clients, some retirement plans, some institutional uh, clients as well, but certainly heavily oriented toward the individual uh, investor side from a wealth management uh, perspective. So I'd say, certainly, we've grown uh, a lot. When I first started, we were a relatively small company. I think I was the 35th, 40th person. On board, so, as more and more people have adopted the type of, of strategy that we employ you know tax efficient uh, low cost broad diversification, I think that certainly helped our, our growth and we've grown nicely alongside the the rest of the the industry that practices similar uh, strategies. Other thing that comes to to my mind when I think about the firm we've certainly you know went from being St. Louis only in terms of where we had office locations now to this point. Uh, many many office locations across the U.S. as we've acquired other like-minded uh, advisory practices. And so, you, is
0: is the the main focus client
1: the 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 end individual? Is it other RIAs? How does it all come together? Yeah, so it gets a little bit complex because we do have two sides to our right. our firm, effectively two different business lines. We've got the side of our business where we are interfacing directly with an individual investor client from a wealth management capacity, and that's the part that I just spoke uh, to. Uh, But we also have a separate uh, side to our business that's now even uh, bigger, which is effectively a combo of what we call our advisory services business and then the Loring Ward uh, side of the business from that acquisition, where our clients are other advisory firms that are independent of Buckingham that are utilizing us for a range of different uh, uh, services Including kind of an investment consulting aspect as well, but they're independent firms. We're just their uh, their clients uh, of ours, basically.
0: And is it a technology solution? Is it just investment advice? Yeah, what are, it's
1: it's it's also changed a lot. Certainly, it a large portion of it is incorporation of technology. So a lot of firms are always thinking about how can I can I operate more efficiently in terms of being able to service my end investor and wealth management clients. So certainly we try to bring technological efficiencies to those firms, but they'll utilize us for lots of other things. So some folks really value the investment consulting uh, support, you know, in terms of being able to hear from our investment uh, committee, what are we thinking about relative to investing in capital market assumptions and a host of other things, all the way to uh, utilizing us for wealth management uh, expertise that we're able to bring to the table. And then since it is a fairly sizable collection uh, in total, in terms of the total number of firms, there's a community aspect to it as well in terms of being able to learn from other advisors that are outside of your your locale. So there's that a uh, dimension to it as well. So let's talk a little
0: bit about your investment philosophy. So you mentioned value earlier on, like how, how do you anchor if you know, if you said take a standard client, typically we'll be a, we can talk about it. What's is the sixty forty the right answer? But right. you could say you know the standard client has a moderate allocation to sixty percent equities, forty percent bonds. Talk through how you
1: guys think about asset allocation and and tilts. Yeah. So a few things that I think will always be bedrock principles of Buckingham. So first is is low cost. Uh, all else equal, we're trying to make sure clients are in the lowest cost uh, portfolios possible. We know all the evidence shows that that's a big big determinant of long-term uh, return. So generally we're we're in low expense portfolios. Frequently uh, on the 40%, say in this example that's in fixed income, a lot of times we're managing those portfolio bonds directly mm. uh, primarily to avoid a uh, company uh, expense uh, there. So that's a huge part of it. We're also big believers in global diversification. So from a starting point for the equity allocation, we're generally going to be like 60-40 US XUS to maybe 70-30 uh, US XUS. So not exactly where market cap Weights are, but we want to make sure that we don't have a huge bias toward the, the U.S. markets, even though we know, again, last 10 years with perfect hindsight, U.S. has been the, the place to be. But we know, again, for an investor's uh, long term horizon, there's no way to know what country is going to perform the best. So those are a couple of bedrock uh, principles. And then I think the next thing that we always think about is within the equities. Um, How do we want to tilt relative to the the market through systematic types of strategies like value for example size so historically our, our primary uh, model portfolio strategies that we would utilize have had a small cap and value tilt uh, done through uh, mutual funds with the belief that over time that should be additive to a long-term return based upon the the published research in that uh, in that arena so those I think those three four things are kind of the classic elements of what our portfolios would would look like uh, only other the thing that jumps to mind is on the fixed income side, we're big believers in staying very high quality on the fixed income side. So you'll see that basically we're taking the vast, vast majority of the risk through the the equity side of, of client portfolios. Yeah, you've done some publishing on that credit
0: risk premium. And is, is there something to taking credit risk? Where do you think
1: advisors tend to go wrong when they allocate fixed
0: income portfolios.
1: So I think to me, and admittedly I'm biased because I I did the work, but I think this is one of the low-key, most most underappreciated kind of academic findings. If if you're thinking about these systematic strategies that most people believe work, like owning equities instead of uh, fixed income intermediate term government bonds instead of T-bills, value versus growth, although that can be debated and we've had those debates. The other one that comes to mind is, well, taking default risk versus owning government uh, bonds. But I think the the thing that would surprise people there is at least how most strategies are constructed. So when you think about an investment grade corporate bond fund, the typical structure is I'm going to hold Those corporate bonds while they're investment grade, but when they hit, uh, those that hit junk status are typically by mandate going to have to be sold, particularly for, say, an uh, index-oriented strategy. And what you find is that that construction, there's really not anything left over. Uh, Basically, all of the yield Advantage that you got from owning investment-grade corporate bonds looks to be virtually given away because of the bonds that you're selling that ultimately get downgraded to, to junk. So this thing that most people think of as the, the credit premium, how it's most typically defined both in the academic world and in practice is to me something that is very, very unreliable historically. That's the, the summary of the work that I, I did that really there doesn't appear to be much there, in terms of if you look at the excess returns of say an investment grade corporate bond index to a comparable maturity treasury uh, index,
0: and and your and part of your point also is that this credit risk is correlated to equity risk, and so you don't you're not getting much value added with this additional credit risk premium.
1: Yeah, that, that's certainly the other other piece of it, and I, there's another piece in the paper where I think I think clearly if you're going to go the corporate bond direction again, that's not something that we would typically do. But to me, you want to look for strategies that are at least going to own corporate bonds after they're downgraded because that's where. Like a total market. Yeah, like a total market credit strategy, which to me, in terms of looking at the the marketplace of saying open-ended fund strategies, is an odd. I mean, there's just not a lot of that out there. There's the high yield you know, thing, and then there's the investment grade thing. There's and fallen not, angels. I yeah, there's you're a, calling yeah, these things. right. There's not a lot of like a total credit strategy. And to me, the the research uh, is very clear there that if you're gonna do that, if you believe that's something that you want to have in the portfolio, be very very wary of funds that are just going to automatically sell something once it hits uh, hits uh, a junk a uh, level credit rating. Let me just reintroduce our guest. We're talking with Jared Kaiser, the Chief Investment Officer
0: for Buckingham Strategic Wealth, the BAM Alliance. Um, and and so, Jared, when you're thinking about this lack of credit risk premia, now yields are at low levels, focusing on government bonds. You've got right. European bonds in negative territory. Um, do you worry Treasuries lose their diversification? The lower yields go. Do you think we're going to zero yield or negative yields here in the U.S. ultimately?
1: Yeah, hard to say. I mean, it's it's even though I would have never believed what we see today, it's still hard for me to believe that the next step would be yields collapsing completely to zero in the in the U.S. But I guess you can't completely discount it. I mean, we're obviously closer than we've typically uh, been. I, I do think though, you make a good point in the sense that. I don't think you can get around the point that there probably is less uh, diversification benefit there in the sense of when you think historically about high-quality fixed-income, say, U.S. Treasuries, part of that benefit was a belief that if things get really, really rocky in the equity market, that you're going to have some price appreciation from the fixed-income side of the portfolio if you're owning, say, intermediate-term Treasuries. And that's while it's not going to completely offset what will be going on in equities, it's at least somewhat Mitigating, I think now you get a little bit of, of that, but you certainly probably aren't going to get as much just because where, of where yields are currently you know, starting uh, at. So I think that is something to, to think about in terms of, of that offset, or at least partial offset, is probably not going to be able to be as, as sizable if you believe that you're, you're not counting on the yields being able to break through you know, zero in terms of us uh, base bonds. And so has that altered your, your planning for
0: retirees and how, you know, people, either whether it's a target date or traditional asset allocation, this sort of low-yield environment that people could count on 4 to 5% yield before, and now yep. they're not? What's what's? Yeah, I think
1: it has to. I mean, I know all of our forward-looking capital market assumptions, and ours are, we, we believe in truly a forward-looking process that's not very grounded in what historical returns have been. And and to me, fixed income is the obvious example. You know, why would you assume a historical return that was four to five percent when yields are much, much lower than that today? So I'm certainly in the camp that thinks that dynamic flows through to almost everything, that you have to plan for basically lower returns across the the board, uh, not just with fixed income, likely from equities at well, or at least equities broadly, if you think about like a broad market market style benchmark, and yeah, there's no getting around that. If you believe that's a reasonable way to project that that is going to have implications in terms of how long is a portfolio likely to be able to last. What type of spending rate uh, can it support? I think uh, everybody has to plan for lower, you know, rates of, uh, of of spending that are going to be possible out of a portfolio, or else start contemplating, you know, other strategies that you truly believe might be able to to improve upon what that traditional stock and, and bond portfolio is going to be able to uh, to deliver. Because again, I don't know how you get around uh, a relatively low Meager expected rates of return again, just for a plain vanilla, a fixed income, and, and kind of a global market style uh, strategy. Now, you mentioned uh,
0: international has been tough. Um, it's as is, is one of the threads recently. Like, how, how do you think about that global diversification? You mentioned the sixty forty to seventy thirty. You know, the market cap is probably closer to fifty fifty, maybe yeah. a little bit trending up with the U.S. outperforming everything. Maybe fifty three fifty four, right? But how do you think about the pain that people have had going anywhere but U.S. growth stocks. I know.
1: It's definitely been, uh, been challenging. Like there's a graphic that we've uh, shared uh, where if you look at like the last, basically the post-financial crisis period and you took uh, MSCI's 20-plus developed countries that they call developed uh, countries, probably not surprisingly the U.S. market is first of that entire group over this this period. So again, no doubt, with perfect hindsight, uh, that's where the highest returns have been. And it's been a little bit worse than that in the sense that some of the countries that have done almost as well are typically countries that aren't big weights in the, the global market. So most of the other bigger countries have really struggled over this last 10-year uh, period. So there's no doubt it's been a huge uh, communication uh, point, but it's also something, I think the main message that we've tried to share, at least two, again, that there's no way to know long-term which country will generate the best performance over somebody's investment uh, lifetime. Uh, That's one. And then the other thing that we've basically shared is that we know historically that there have been a significant number of Periods where either the U.S. has outperformed the rest of the world by a lot or vice versa. So this is something, even though it's painful for somebody that's globally diversified, it's something that we have seen occur throughout the history of U.S. versus ex-U.S. Uh, performance.
0: And do you have a preference in developed versus emerging today? Is there one that's more attractive on either
1: valuations or... An expected growth
0: profile?
1: So I think you could argue possibly for higher expected returns from emerging, but I think you, you want to be cognizant there of basically probably not more than 10% of a portfolio makes sense to have in, in emerging uh, markets. So I think there, even if you believe that returns are expected to be much higher there, you pr- probably still want to have a relatively modest weight uh, there. And is that a valuation or a growth rate? I mean, you do see... I
0: mean, it, they are both are cheap you know, right. relative to the u s um, the, the populations are in the emerging the, you know they, they have better growth, but they also have more risks and more inflation you've got this China trade as a symbolic right. of what 's going on right. um,
1: yeah so I, I mean I think you could definitely argue again that return, I think returns are expected to be higher yeah. uh, there, but even a diversified emerging markets portfolio still has a lot of volatility. So, in the work that i 've seen, even if you believe returns are expected to be higher, you probably don 't want to go extremely high in terms of a portfolio weight uh, there just because the volatility is so much higher, and even even going from say ten percent of a portfolio up to say if you twenty percent, for example, of an equity portfolio could lead to a big increase in kind of overall volatility uh, dynamics. So I think that's the the bigger driver if even if you are confident that returns are expected to be higher are you really does it really make sense t- for that to translate into a p- extremely high weight for emerging I think that's a harder argument to to make. Now you've done some publishing on which of the different valuation factors
0: yeah to focus on you have the you know, the godfathers of the value industry who have focused a lot on price to book. The Russell Mm -hmm. Index is focused on price to book. There's other measures of of value. How do you, do you have a preferred measure? How do you think about the ideals or anything changing in the global economy that makes you less confident in price to book as a a story?
1: Yeah, so I'll I'll take the preferred measure question first. So I, I don't really think there's a preferred measure. I think price divided by almost anything that's a reasonable accounting variable is likely going to produce a value premium historically, whether it's price earnings, price cash flow, price book value. So I, I'm in the camp that says there's probably is no perfect uh, measure. I do think when you layer in the the real world of portfolio management you have to start thinking about are there some of these measures that produce lower turnover than others that might be preferable and certainly that's I think one of the the pros that a book value based uh, measure uh, uh has so I think all those measures though are generally uh, uh good ways to implement uh implement value mixing measures can can generally make sense as uh, as well uh, but what I would say, though, if you said uh, from the work that, that I've I've done, others have done, if you look at just the uh, academic definitions of value defined different ways, like the, the classic price-to-book measure, price-to-earnings, price-to-cash flow, and say, is there anything that is – truly truly distinct and completely game changing about one compared to the other i think there's very weak evidence uh, there i think you could argue maybe uh, uh, that the cash flow based measures will bring in more of like a profitability piece to them which which might be might be preferable but i definitely don't believe that there's you know, these are the good ones and these are the bad ones. I think they're all capturing some similar things. And, and that if you're using any one of them or a combo of, of them, that that's probably a reasonable, you know, way to, to, to go. So I think uh, um, basically this idea that there is some perfect measure, I don't really think it's it's out there. I think they all have their, their challenges there. Now, what will, we, what will you say about Price to book being a
0: sector tilt of basically financials versus tech and, you know, that and and given what we know about rates are around the world, is there, do you worry at all about this tech versus financials long run?
1: Um, well, so I think in in practicality there, I think what you're saying is, is true. You can see that financials bias, uh, All the fund managers that we work with, I don't know any that have no sector constraints whatsoever, that they're not overlaying on top of the the value metric that they're, they're using. Now, some of those constraints can be tighter, some can be more loose, but I think virtually Everyone is trying to add something to constrain sector exposures to some degree um, uh, there. So I think in practicality, they're, they're trying to, to mitigate that to some degree for whatever the measure is that they uh, that they uh, uh, end up choosing there. And then the other thing I would say, even though it's, it's pretty weak in terms of not incredibly strong, I do think there's at least a reason to believe there could be a modest – uh, value premium across industries. So to me, it's not the end of the world that you're not exactly at sector neutral relative to the broader market, as long as you've you've got what you believe is a good measure. You've got some. Uh, uh, Sector constraints that you're adding on top of that, so it can't just completely go to financials or, or something uh, like uh, like that. I think that's a reasonable, you know, structure to uh, to, to to take. Again, it, for me, all of these things are are so marginal in terms of that it's it's almost impossible to say that no, this is the definitively better way to go. And there's a huge flaw. Here, I think there's a lot of people trying to say that. I, I just don't think it, there's anything nearly that definitive that you can say for most sensible ways of, of going about building a value portfolio. Now, that's not to say that, you know, one of them will end up doing better than the other over a particular period of time, but saying, oh, definitively, this is the best and these are the, the worst. I think that's just difficult to, to say.
0: Any other areas of research you're actively working on? You're excited about things that that could change how you you think about things or manage portfolios?
1: Uh, So thinking about things I've done uh, recently, so uh, interesting uh, work I did looking at basically the REIT uh, market, the publicly traded uh, uh, REIT market, which is something that we utilize, have reflected in client portfolios. There's been a lot, uh, some debate at least, is it a unique Asset classes are publicly traded real estate, distinct from stocks and and bonds. So some of the work that I've done there basically suggests that they're really not truly alternative in that sense, in terms of being completely distinct from stocks and bonds, that they basically kind of look like a hybrid uh, type of, uh, of investment. So uh, that was fun work to, to work through because it's an asset class that we have used in client portfolios, debated, is this an alternative investment strategy? Is it, uh, is it not? So that's one that's gotten a little bit of, uh, of attention and was an interesting paper to, to work through.
0: And uh, anything else on stocks and bonds? You, you mentioned there's sort of stocks, bonds, and some anything else that diversifies. Is there anything in that other category that yeah. uh, that's more relevant today than it used to be, or is inflation dead? No, nothing beyond stocks and bonds is all that we need
1: so we we do have some alternative strategies that we we utilize basically across uh, uh, basically three different areas for certain clients. One would be kind of a, a marketplace lending uh, strategy that 's basically in the consumer uh, lending uh, space, which is certainly fixed income in some sense, but I think alternative. Uh, enough and and certainly not uh, perfectly liquid that I think it it can fit in the alternative bucket. Uh, Reinsurance as well, although it's had a rough uh, couple of years when you look at that that as a long-term diversifying strategy, I think there's a real solid case that that is truly distinct and different from stocks and bonds and can generate return above high-quality fixed income. And then again, along with the the factor-oriented things that we we do, we're big believers that if you're going to implement uh, tilts in any kind of way that you should think about doing it in all asset classes as well. So we've got like an alternative risk premium strategy that we use that's basically trying to take this concept of tilting towards certain styles and equities and then applying that broad based across other asset classes as uh, as well. So we still are are in the skeptical camp, but not so skeptical that we would say there are no alternative strategies that could ever make sense. So we will uh, advocate in some cases for modest allocations to strategies like those Those three.
0: Very good. Any, any other closing thoughts or things about Buckingham, the BAM Alliance you'd like
1: our, our listeners to know? Don't think so. Yeah, thanks for having me uh, on today. Good conversation. Thanks for joining us, Jared.